0: Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome to the show today, everybody. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Um, Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, Doug, Erica, Gabby, and Tiffany are with us today. We've got the full crew. Um, Today, our topic is... (laughs) <laughs> everybody say hi hello hello Hello. today uh our, our topic is going to be salt uh we covered sugar last week so today we thought we would go into salt some of the myths um and uh propaganda around salt uh it's been kind of demonized uh in the recent history um i'm sure everybody has heard you know reduce your sodium intake watch for your salt too much salt and um that's not really accurate uh There's a lot of uh, data behind why you really need enough salt, what it is good for, and we're going to go over some of those things today. Um, But first, let's get started with our connecting the dots and just going over some of the things in the news from this week. Uh, Gabby is going to start us with an article about carbs.
1: Yes, in the news this week, we have an article titled, Actually, You Don't Need Carbohydrates for Energy. It is written by Mike Sheridan, who is a nutrition and fitness coach writing for the Huffington Post. And he explains that of all the nutrition and fitness misconceptions he hears, the following one is the front runner for most absurd, I need carbohydrates for energy. Well, he argues that it's not the case. He explains how did we survive and thrive as hunter-gatherers on less than 80 grams of carbs per day while still chasing a wild boar, being a tree, just keep a pack of wolves and walking five miles back and forth to gather fresh water. So the reality is humans are not meant to consume an abundant amount of carbs and there is no dietary requirement for carbs. Um, like protein and fat, carbs supply none of the elements necessary to weld the repair tissue in the body and provide no essential component. Mike reminds us that the Institute of Medicine states in their dietary reference intake manual, the lower limit of dietary carbohydrates compatible with life apparently is zero, provided that adequate amounts of protein and fat are consumed. So basically, this is a news item which reminds us that the body is perfectly capable of burning fat for fuel, producing an energy surge that is stable and anti-inflammatory. And this is the basis of the ketogenic diet, something that we covered on previous shows. And um, yes, you can listen to our previous shows, the two series of the ketogenic diet. You can also watch YouTube, The Art and Science of Nutritional Ketosis by Stephen Finney to hear some testimonials of how elite athletes are breaking the record. And for those who are more interested in hearing testimonials or reading about testimonials of those who recovered from debilitating diseases, there is Keto-Adapted by Maria Emmerich. So, yeah, our shows and those two sources are very good reviews.
0: Cool. Thanks, Gabby. Um, that's uh, something that I think has been controversial for uh, for some time now since the advent of the ketogenic diet and the paleo diet coming into the mainstream is that a lot of people are saying, well, no, you need these carbohydrates. But actually, that's uh, that's not true. And the science is really starting to come out on that. Um Erica, you wanted to follow up with some uh, some other articles. Sounds like there's interesting things going on in Hawaii.
2: Oh, yes. So um, before I get to an update on the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, I wanted to mention one of the articles last week that caught my eye. It's called Idiocracy, Food Packaging Should Have Traffic Light Labels. And it's by Heather Colligan from the Activist Post on March 9th. So apparently there is a debate or discussion going on about should food products be labeled with traffic light symbols to make health-related information on ingredients easier to understand? And there's researchers at the University of Bonn that are asking this question. And um, they did a press release for the journal Obesity, and um, they're trying to passed this red, yellow, green stoplight initiative to put on labels um, for foods that contain unspecified levels of salt, sugar, and fat. Granted, they don't say what kind of fat and sugar or salt, but the press release goes on to say red, yellow, green, the traffic light symbols, labels on packages are supposed to be an easy-to-understand indication of overall healthiness of a food product. For example, red symbolizes a high percentage of fat, sugar or salt and green has a lower percentage. This is the first study that analyzes the effect that traffic light symbols have on the evaluation process in the consumer's brain when making a purchase decision. <laughs> yeah. This uh um Basically, Professor Bernard Weber of the Center of Economics and Neuroscience at the University of Braun says the traffic lights will help consumers choose a healthier diet when grocery shopping, which the the article says Idiocracy is based on a movie, if nobody's seen it, just about the ridiculousness of this color-coding system and how, you know, if. Just anything in a package to begin with is probably not good for your health. So she goes on to say, does this idea remind you of the USDA's Choose My Plate, this colorful plate with preschool shapes, which costs the American taxpayer $2 million just for the plate? It's like a a pyramid of predecessors. It also is full of questionable advice about fat, salt phobia, and our love affair with grains. Hmm. So I just found that article kind of interesting in light of, you know, this toxic food packaging alone should all have a red sticker. But just how dumbed (laughs) down the uh, big, you know, big ag, big pharma health industry is thinking that, if you know, they use this stoplight as a way to make your food decisions that you're going to be better if you choose the green label. And it says nothing about the ingredients, you know, and it also kind of um, says a further goodbye to any attempts for GMO labeling, right? So they just put the traffic symbol in there and there's no need to label anything else in there. And this article kind of piqued my interest because I've been following this Trans-Pacific Partnership and ironically, uh, this last week, they had their secret meeting here in Hawaii, um, which I thought was kind of interesting. So last week, um, on the Big Island of Hawaii, at a very exclusive resort in Waikaloa, these uh, TPP attendees had their meeting in secrecy. There was no news coverage of it at all. There was one small little local organization that got together and you can watch the videos on the SOT page. The article is called Concerned Hawaii Residents Discuss the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And if you watch the video, you'll see there's like 10 people in the room. (laughs) And um, they basically got together and uh, it was a Juliet Begley, she's uh, Americans for Democratic Action. And she gave a little talk along with um, some other uh, woman, Dr. Jane Kessley of the University of Auckland, New Zealand, and then Jim Albertini of the Malu Aina Center for Nonviolent Education and Action. And so um, I just want to share some of the things that she says in this video about the TPP that people may not be aware of. So, basically, she was stating to this public forum that TPP is the embodiment of what happens when government and corporate interests collude. We lose. So, we the consumers, we human beings. TPP is based on similar aspects of NAFTA and the implications for every aspect of American American life, right? So, everyone will be implicated by this. She states that including intellectual property rights, labor and environmental protections, consumer safety and product labeling, government procurement, and national resource management. She goes on to say that the way these agreements are crafted, we can be quite certain that with the favor of corporate interests and profits, On human well-being, we are left out of the loop. Once approved, agreements will override national local laws, including the U.S. Constitution, and will not be subject to review or revision by any national legislative nor judicial body, including the U.S. Supreme Court. And she goes Mm -hmm. on to say that these are sobering words. TPP is a vehicle to undermine the government, as we know it today, with beneficiaries being corporations over people. And it's all been done in secrecy. And this was even discussed back in the George Bush era. So it's been years in the making. Hmm. And um, this uh, Dr. Jane Kessley says that they've been having these meetings in secret because if it was exposed to the light of day, it wouldn't survive. People would be upset and they would you know, fight against it. Um, and she goes on to say that this is an agreement for the 21st century that, that benefits the 1%. And in the, this, um, same article, you can watch, there's a little protest that was organized, um, against the TPP and people had signs and, um, There was there was even a funny little talk about how the delegates were actually taking off their badges and hiding their badges so the protesters couldn't see which countries (laughs) they represented. (laughs) (laughs) So it kinda goes back to our article of last week about, you know, is the US fast tracking its way to a toxic nightmare? You know, this is basically what's happening as you can see the overall picture of You know, this violation of our basic human rights to know what's in our food, to know what's in our medicine, and to have any sort of recourse on how to change that, right? And then kind of on a similar note, another uh, interesting thing that kind of adds to our discussion last week uh, on the health and wellness section uh, posted on March 10th from Tyler Gagan. Jagen in Natural News, don't believe the hype. High fructose corn syrup is now being labeled as fructose. So it just says the Corn Refiners Association is now labeling high fructose corn syrup as fructose. Packaging hmm. on products such as General Mills Vanilla Check cereal now states the product contains no high fructose corn syrup, while the list contains the simple word fructose. And for those who may have missed our show last week, um fructose is actually manufactured sugar called HFCS 90 and it's made up of 90% fructose. So it goes on to say, you know, obviously people are reading labels, right? So now they're going to change it from high fructose corn syrup because it's got such a bad name to just fructose. And people who aren't informed are going to think, oh, it's better for me. And, and an added note on um, that the, the Corn Refiners Association, you know, 80% of the corn grown in the U.S. is from genetically modified seeds. And Dr. Mercola wrote about the Corn Refiners Association in An article called Dramatic Example of How the Food Industry Lies to You About Corn. And I'll just read this one little quote that he has. The Corn Refiners Association has been trying to counter the seriously bad PR generated by damaging research findings since 2004, but finally realized it can no longer afford to rely on simply grassroots marketing tactics such as sweet-talking nutritionists and doctors. So I I share these articles because it all kind of ties together with this idea, you know, the labeling, we're going to give you red, yellow, green labeling, but we're not going to really let you know what's in your food. So it's truly frightening.
3: It makes me think of the the, uh, – Sorry, go
0: ahead, Jonathan. Oh, I was just going to say when the the advent of the gluten-free kind of craze – Um, I don't know exactly when, I guess I would, I would vaguely kind of place it about six or seven years ago when that started to become really popular and everything was just, you know, is it labeled gluten-free or not? And even if it was gluten-free, it might have a hundred grams of sugar in in whatever you're buying, you know? And so people were just kind of, it's, it's this, um, it's almost like neuro-linguistic programming. It's this trigger that you see and you're like, oh, that's okay. So I'm going to eat it Mm -hmm. without any further research. That's what this makes me think of. Sorry, Doug, what were you going to say there?
3: Well, I was just going to say the way that they've changed the name of high fructose corn syrup. I mean, it just goes to show how easily they can kind of manipulate these things, like manipulate what's put on the packages. So the whole thing yep. about the traffic lights is just ridiculous because, you know, these, these these marketing people aren't idiots, right? Like they're not going to let mm-hmm. a red traffic light show up on their product. So they'll make any kind of uh, little changes that they need to make to, in order to uh, to get themselves a green traffic light, like changing high fructose corn syrup to just fructose oh, well, this doesn't have high fructose corn syrup, but it has fructose. So we'll give it a green traffic light because that's better for you. When it when really it's the exact same thing, and you know just replacing all the uh, all the uh, the the red light ingredients with uh, things that are considered green light um, just to in order to get the 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 better um, the better label. Um, it's no better for you in the end, though. So I bet, I would I just thought that that was pretty interesting.
0: Totally. I mean, yeah, we first... already see how. how these major companies deal with any kind of bad PR. I mean, does anybody really think that they're going to, you know, step aside and and let themselves get a red light label? You know, they're going to throw $20 million at whatever congressman it takes to turn that to a green light. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, and that's where the TPP is really frightening because they can have all these backroom deals, make all these decisions and consumers who are buying the product have absolutely no say in it. And we really see this in the, in the GMO argument, you know, I mean, Maui County is, is right now really trying to get rid of GMOs and it's becoming kind of a surging swell of people just getting informed. And if this TPP is to pass, which they're expecting it will, you know, all these labeling issues are going to go out the door and nobody's going to have any rights. Mm
0: -hmm.
4: That's why it's up to all of us to do our own research. And Mm -hmm. research nutrition don't just rely on whatever label they allow to go onto their food packages. I mean, personally, that uh, idiocracy, uh, the green light, red light thing, I find it insulting. Like yeah, know, totally. the the CR people, they're not idiots, but they think that we are all idiots so and we need is a registered green lot so we can know what to buy. Uh, sure. they just think we're stupid and they're taking advantage of people's mobility and I don't care for it one bit. Yeah. No, I agree.
3: Just, and same same thing that happened with the uh the whole My Play thing that Erica just uh mentioned with the um you know the the like the government uh USDA food pyramid, and the, the reason they introduced the, the my plate thing is they thought that the food pyramid was too confusing for consumers, that they couldn't right. figure it out. It had to be shaped like a plate in order to figure out how much of, of your plate needs. Like, I mean, talk about insulting. Like, honestly, yeah. you, can't, you can't look at a, a pyramid graph, and not, not that you should be trying to eat according to the pyramid, but, but the whole thing is just so ridiculous. Like, it, it really makes consumers look like complete idiots.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I I guess I sometimes I feel a little bit cynical about, on the, about that, too. Like you kind of you get what you ask for, you know, and when when people mm-hmm. aren't researching their food um, and, you know, the uh, a lot of the, the epidemics of modern diseases that we have are, are due to people basically just taking what they're given um, without yeah. looking further into it. Uh, you kind of you kind of get what you ask for. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, when you, green as people. Yeah, <laughs> You know, if you, if you act like a child, you, you're treated like a child. And I think that, um, the people that are in, in power, um, they understand that principle and they're just going to go ahead and continue treating everybody that way. Yeah. So, well, um, I guess moving into our topic for today, we're going to talk about salt and let's start with a little bit of the history. Tiffany, did you have, uh, Some interesting factoids about the history of salt?
4: I got a little bit of history of salt. It has a very long and colorful history. Um, But before there was even the production of salt, before it became industrialized, primitive people like nomadic hunter-gatherers, they got all the salt that they needed from the blood of the animals that they hunted. I know there's um, a lot of articles going around saying that um, Paleolithic people's a low-salt diet but this might not necessarily be true like if you look at the Maasai in Africa they're nomadic hunter-gatherers and they easily obtain all the salt that they need by drinking the blood of their livestock (laughs) so um, before there was even production of salt we still had salt but after uh, the advent of agriculture humans had to manufacture their own salt Uh, Salt has been used in uh, religious offerings as far back as 6050 B.C. Um, There are over 30 references to salt in the Bible, expressions such as salt of the earth. I think Jesus said that about his disciples. Um, Lot's wife in the Bible, she was turned into a pillar of salt. At the Last Supper, Judas spilled a bowl of salt, which was supposed to be a bad omen. Um, In a lot of uh, religions, salt represents purity. Uh, Covenants were sealed with salt, and salt is the origin of the word salvation. Um, In Buddhism, salt repels evil spirits. It's used in purifications, and even today, there are sumo wrestlers. They sprinkle salt in the ring. There's a, a tradition in some Asian cultures of throwing salt over your shoulder, before you enter your house after a funeral Um, uh, so salt um, it became highly valued after agriculture because since we're no longer drinking blood or eating lots of meat and our carb intake increased um, salt became highly valued and its production became legally restricted It was used in trade and as a currency. Um, The Romans, they built roads specifically for transporting salt. Wars have been fought over salt. And during the American Revolutionary War, rebels, they were unable to preserve their food because British loyalists intercepted their salt supply. Um, Some other phrases or words that come from salt is salary. Um, Roman soldiers, they were given salt rations, so that's where the word salary comes from. And also salad, Um, the early Romans, they'd salt their greens and their vegetables. So that's where uh, salad is derived from the word salt. And also the phrase, not worth his salt, that was derived from um, the ancient slave trade in Greece. So a little colorful history there, but one of the the uh the best pivotal roles that salt has played uh, in history is making food storable and transportable by using salt to preserve food so if salt had such a a good reputation before it was very prized and valued how did it become so villainous how do we move from salt being so valued to it being I don't know, the bane of existence for a lot of people. (laughs) So back in 1904, uh, there was the first reported link between salt and high blood pressure. There were two researchers. They reported that salt deprivation was associated with lower blood pressure in patients who had hypertension. So over the next 50 years, there were various animal models. um, They supported this hypothesis that salt causes high blood pressure. But they don't tell you that in all of these studies, there were huge, huge amounts of refined salt that they gave to these lab animals, and that caused them to have hypertension. So if you give a lab animal, who knows exactly how much salt an animal is supposed to get, but if you give these animals large amounts of a lifeless product that has no minerals, um, how can you take these results seriously? So in the 1940s, there was a a researcher at Duke University, and he became famous for using salt restriction to treat people with high blood pressure. And there are later studies that allegedly confirmed that re- reducing salt could help reduce high blood pressure. So pretty much after this, salt became public enemy number one. Um, and in 1976, there was a president of Tufts University And she called salt the most dangerous food additive of all, which is very funny, considering we have GMOs now. Um, So four years later, the New York Times, they jumped on the bandwagon, and they said that excessive consumption of salt is bad for your blood pressure, heart, kidney, kidney disease, and stroke. So that's where we are today. Salt is evil or so they would tell you.
0: Well, along those lines, um, I, did, I believe you also had a, a list uh, that we're going to go over here of the top ten benefits of salt. Uh, is that yeah. help us to transition into that and talk about why salt is not evil?
4: Yeah, so contrary to what the mainstream medical associations say, that there there are numerous benefits of salt to have just 10 of them here. This came from uh, Ready Nutrition uh, written by Test Pennington. So I'm talking about sea salt here, not regular table salt or refined salt. So the, the first one is that sea salt builds a strong immune system. Um, there's negative ions in sea salt that relieve stress. Uh, salt destroys bacteria on the skin and inhaling saline solutions. Like if you... um. Did a nasal rinse with a saline solution or used a neti pot. Um, it's bacteriocidal and anti inflammatory. So, if you ever use a neti pot, if you have nasal congestion or sinus infections, it's great for that. The second thing is that salt is alkalizing. So, if you do heavy workouts, you lift a lot of weight. Uh, salt helps remove lactic acid buildup and it'll help you have a faster recovery after your workout. Third is that salt uh, helps in weight loss. Uh, It increases the amount of digestive juices in your stomach, and it leads to better digestion and less buildup of fecal matter in your intestines. Fourth, uh, salt is good for skin conditions. It relieves dry, itchy skin like eczema or psoriasis. Uh, It opens up your pores, and it improves circulation.
0: Hmm.
4: The fifth benefit of salt is that it is good for asthma. It reduces inflammation in your respiratory tract, and it slows down phlegm production. Next is uh, sea salt is good for heart health. It reduces high blood pressure, and uh, it helps correct irregular heartbeats. Seventh, and this is one that I've never heard of before, um, sea salt is good for diabetes. It reduces the need for insulin in type 2 diabetics by maintaining proper glucose levels. Um, Among the trace minerals that are in sea salt is chromium, and chromium works with insulin, and it facilitates moving glucose out of the bloodstream and into your cells, thereby lowering your blood sugar numbers. Eighth, uh, sea salt is good for your bones. One-fourth of the salt in your body is stored in your bones, and when your body lacks salt, it starts leaching it from your bones. So it helps prevent uh, conditions like osteoporosis. Huh. Ninth, sea salt is good for preventing muscle spasms because it contains magnesium and potassium, which helps your muscle function. And last, the last benefit of sea salt, I'm sure there's more, but this is all I have, um, it helps your mood because salt preserves both serotonin and melatonin. So that's mm-hmm. it. And that's your top 10 benefits of sea salt.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Right well, it certainly seems like quite a, quite a regulating factor in the, in the body that we really need for, for all these different um, mechanisms. Um, Doug, I believe you were going to cover a little bit about the lies about salt. Um, wonder if we could go over why people have been led to believe that it's, uh, that it's not good for you. Yeah, okay, sure.
3: Um, I, I got a lot of this information from uh, an article by Gary Taubes um, in the New York Times in June of 2012. Uh, the article is called Salt, We Misjudged You. And uh, people might know Gary Taubes' name because he's the author of uh, a couple of really excellent books, uh, one's called Good Calories, Bad Calories, which is excellent. It's a, it's quite a thick book, but uh, definitely worth reading. Uh, it goes over the, um, a lot of the uh, low fat myths and, uh, benefits of a, of a high fat diet. And then he has another one called Why We Get Fat, which is, uh, which is another great, great book, a little bit shorter, a little easier to read. Um, so I definitely recommend those. Um, so yeah, uh, he starts off by saying that salt consumption is said to raise blood pressure, cause hypertension, <laughs> and increase the risk of premature death. Um, The Department of Agriculture's dietary guidelines still consider salt public enemy number one, um, coming before fats, sugars, and alcohol. Uh, The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has suggested that reducing salt consumption is critical to long-term health. Um, But despite these things, uh, all these uh, things from the uh, government agencies, uh, evidence to support this has always been really weak. Um, I'll quote them. He says, uh, while back then the evidence merely failed to demonstrate that salt was harmful, the evidence from studies published over the past two years actually suggests that restricting how much salt we eat can, have can increase your like- our likelihood of dying prematurely. Put simply, the possibility has been raised that if we were to, to eat as little salt as the USDA and the CDC recommend, we'd be harming rather than helping ourselves. Um so the, uh, the argument that salt is harmful is really always relied on bi- uh, biological plausibility rather than hard facts. So it's like, you know, they've looked at um, kind of some of the evidence and, and, and seen that there's a suggestion that maybe uh, taking in less uh, salt would be good for uh, blood pressure, hypertension. But um, they've never actually found the facts to support that, um, uh the The idea is that if you eat more salt, your body retains water to maintain a stable concentration of sodium in your blood um, and this is why eating uh salty food tends to make you thirsty you know you you drink more and um retain more water and and this is this is why you know you see in bars and stuff like that they offer free salty peanuts and things like that for people to eat um because sure. you know the salt makes you thirsty and then you end up uh drinking more and buying more uh buying more alcohol um And the result of of eating salt is there is a temporary increase in blood pressure, um, which persists until your kidneys eliminate the salt and the water. Um, But the scientific question is whether this temporary phenomenon translates into a chronic problem. Um, If we eat too much salt for years, does it raise our blood pressure, cause hypertension, and then strokes, and kill us prematurely? Um, It makes sense, but it's only a hypothesis. Um, in 1972, the National Institutes of Health uh, introduced the National High Blood Pressure Education Program, um, and out of that conference came two pieces of research that uh, connected salt to hypertension. Um, the first one was uh, it was that in observed uh, populations that ate little salt, um, they had no hypertension. But the only problem with this is that it's an observational thing, and there was lots of things that they didn't do. Um, they didn't eat uh, sugar, for one thing, um, which may be... Uh, a lot more likely uh, to be a culprit. But they just looked at them and said, oh, they eat less salt, therefore um, salt must lead to hypertension. Um, the second piece of evidence was there were rat studies um, where they took a strain of rats that were very salt-sensitive and um, they found that they reliably developed hypertension on a high salt diet. The only problem with that was that they were fed, uh, that the rats were fed 60 times higher salt intake than what the average American consumes. Um well. So yeah. I mean it's no real uh, surprise that if you feed um a rat sixty times more uh salt than the average American consumes and at that it was refined salt, then yeah, you know, they're gonna they're gonna have some negative effects. That's not really that surprising. Um but you know, this council was under the pressure to make some sort of recommendation, so this is their best bet. So um Despite the fact that the researchers quietly admitted that the data was inconclusive and contradictory, the recommendation that came out of there was to reduce salt consumption to uh, to deal with hypertension. Um, ever since then, the National Institutes of Health have spent millions of dollars testing this hypothesis, and they failed to make um, the evidence any more clear. Uh, institutions who recommend lowering salt, including the USDA, um, sorry, the USDA, the, insti- the National Nash- The Institute of Medicine, the CDC, and the NIH rely on the 2001 DASH sodium study, which was uh, a 30-day trial. Um, And DASH uh, suggested that drastically lowering your salt consumption had a moderate lowering effect on blood pressure. Now, mind you, this was only 30 days, so we already know that um, taking in salt, uh, you know, will temporarily raise your blood pressure, but they weren't looking at uh, long-term effects or anything like that. Um, And the DASH study didn't show whether... Um, this would reduce hypertension, prevent heart disease, or lengthen life in any way. Um, In 2011, the Cochrane Collaboration, which is uh, an international nonprofit organization, um, published two meta-analyses. The first one found that cutting back the amount of salt eaten reduces blood pressure, but there's insufficient evidence to confirm the predicted uh, reductions in people dying prematurely or suffering cardiovascular disease. Uh, And the second one concluded that we do not know if low-salt diets improve or worsen health outcomes. So that was really interesting. They didn't know whether it improves or worsens. You know, this is the first time you really see that they're, they're actually admitting that there might actually be the possibility that it worsens your health outcomes by lowering salt. Sure. Um, so there was a 1972 paper in the New England Journal of Medicine that reported that less salt, the less salt people ate, the higher their levels of a substance secreted by the kidneys called renin, which set off a physiological cascade of events that seem to end with an increased risk of heart disease. Um, so th- in this scenario, you eat less salt, you secrete more re- renin, you get heart disease and die prematurely. Um, in the last, uh, last decade, Italian researchers have begun publishing results from a series of clinical trials, all of which reported that among patients with heart failure, reducing salt consumption increased the risk of death. Uh, salt consumption is actually remarkably stable over populations, suggesting that the amount of salt we eat is actually physiologically determined, not based on taste or habit. Which I thought was really interesting. Um, and there's other there's other studies there that have actually confirmed this as well. That that you know, left alone, people will kind of regulate their own salt consumption um, because the amount of salt that you need in your body is um, is like physio- physiologically determined. So if your body needs more salt, it'll eat it'll you'll crave more salt. Um, versus if you have too much salt, then you won't crave as much salt, you won't use as much. Um, Hmm. quoting Gary Taubes here again. In the United States, for instance, it has remained constant for the last 50 years, despite 40 years of the eat less salt message. Um, The average salt intake in these populations, what could be called the normal salt intake, was one and a half teaspoons a day, almost 50% above what the federal agencies consider safe consider a safe upper limit for healthy Americans under 50 and more than double what the policy advises for those who aren't so young and healthy. So four studies from these Italian researchers involving uh, type 1 diabetics, type 2 diabetics, healthy Europeans, and uh, patients with chronic heart failure reported that people eating salt at the lower limit of the normal spectrum uh, were more likely to have heart disease than those eating smack in the middle of the normal range, um, which is effectively what the 1972 uh, paper would have predicted. Um, Taubes mentions that question, uh, questioning the eat less salt message gets you accused of being a shill for the food industry. Um, similar to what we see from like smoking, any, any benefits, uh, of smoking put forward gets you accused of being a shill for the tobacco industry or, uh, questioning the whole evil Putin message gets you, uh, accused of working for the Kremlin. Um, <laughs> yeah. <when so>? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, When several agencies, including the Department of Agriculture and the Food and Drug Administration, held a hearing last November to discuss how to go about getting Americans to eat less salt, and uh, Taubes points out here that this was uh, opposed to to finding out whether or not we should even be recommending to eat less salt in the first place, Um, these proponents argued that the latest report suggesting damage from lower salt diets should simply be ignored. So that's pretty telling right there despite the fact that there's evidence out there that, uh, lowering your salt consumption is damaging. We should just brush that under the rug and, uh, and, you know, make, make recommendations on lowering salt consumption.
0: Well, it certainly seems like um, a similar situation is with the, um, the, the high fat versus low fat diet where the American heart association stepped in and made a bunch of their official recommendations. Um, It makes me curious as to why there would be such a backlash against SALT, you know, unless there was some sort of a specific mechanism at play or if it's just the, uh, you know, just the the rambling of of idiots, so to speak.
3: Yeah, I think it is that. I think these things tend to get like a lot of momentum behind them um, Mm -hmm. and and people stop questioning them and and just trying to push the agenda forward without, you know, and and you have a couple of people on the sidelines like kind of shouting, saying, hey, wait. You know, maybe we're going in the wrong direction here, but because of the momentum that's behind it, they just they, these people just get silenced.
0: Sure. Well, along those lines um Gabby, did you want to uh maybe we can transition into a little bit of a uh, little bit more of the science uh physiology uh behind salt metabolism. Do you want to talk about that for a few?
1: Yeah. And, uh, I just wanted to mention, well, you, you said about the cholesterol meat and there's also this salt meat. And, uh, we know that cholesterol is so vital, you know, and salt is also very critical to our health as, as we're reviewing, you know, it sparks body's your chemical pathways. It sparks electrical nerve impulses that drives muscle movement and thought processes. It's very important. It's physiology in the body is, um, It seems a bit complicated, and we're going to make a little review of the basics. Bear with me. It's not that difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We start basically with aldosterone, which is it is a hormone, and it's a hormone produced by the adrenal gland. It plays a central role in regulation of blood pressure, and it basically, what it does, it increases the amount of salt reabsorbed into your bloodstream. The the amount of this salt reabsorbed is called sodium. Sodium. And uh, aldosterone also causes water to be retained along with the sodium, so this increases blood pressure. Aldosterone, this hormone, is controlled by several mechanisms, but for relevant to our show. um, We have to keep in mind that one mechanism um, where aldosterone is stimulated is a decrease in sodium levels in your blood. That is, you know, the lower salt in your blood, the more aldosterone gets stimulated to increase the blood pressure. So, and literally quoted from textbooks, you know, aldosterone is much increased at low sodium intake. And the result of this is that, you know, aldosterone will try to raise your blood pressure from whatever sodium it can be absorbed. And I remember reviewing this in, like, uh, in the 90s when I was in med school, and I thought to myself in back then, you know, Whoa! So the recommendations to lower salt intake in order to reduce blood pressure don't make any sense at all. <laughs> but it, huh. well, I thought I was missing something. Or well,
4: <laughs> <laughs> it
1: was only uh, it was only until 2008 where I came from the first study that made me, you know, it was literally like a jaw a jaw drop, you know. And it was an article published at ThoughtNet in 2008. It was a review of a paper made by Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and the researchers analyzed data of like 9,000 U.S. adults. And they found that those who consumed the lowest amount of sodium were found to be 80% more likely to die from cardiovascular disease
4: compared
1: to those who consumed the highest level. This is like a huge number. It's like not fifteen, not 60%, it's 80% more likely to die from cardiovascular disease. The lowest your sodium levels are in your bloodstream. But not only cardiovascular disease, they also found that the risk of death from any cause was 24%, 24% greater for those consuming um, lower salt. So, yes, that was the first time, which when you realize, like, whoa, like, <laughs> mm-hmm. so basically, yeah, maybe reviewing basic physiology and not getting brainwashed by medical guidelines is just what it takes, you know, to figure out what is best for our bodies, mm-hmm. you know. And, um, yeah, the, it is interesting that it's not only cardiovascular disease. Um Tiffany was reviewing the 10 top benefits of salt. Of sea salt intake, you know. I also came with similar data um, where researchers found that, you know, those who ate mineral empty processed foods and fizzy drinks were um, had, you know, higher uh, incidence of autoimmune diseases. And they had animal models uh, which showed that refined salt increased inflammation and in the production of cells involved the in autoimmune response. And uh, so they speculated that the consumption of beef refined salt as opposed to sea salt or, you know, whole salt was among the factors of of the rise of autoimmune disease. And just as Stephanie mentioned, I think uh, there's a Polish hospital which is carved in a salt mountain, you know. And what they do with their asthmatics patients and also those who have lung disease and allergies, they put them in these solid underground chambers and their symptoms improved by 90% just by breathing oh. in this solid, you know, chamber, you know, that's actually pretty oh. remarkable. Wow. So yes, this is our our beloved salt now.
4: <laughs> mm-hmm. That sounds great. They put them in underground salt caves. Yeah. Like this on is in Poland. <laughs> yeah. to so keep in yeah, mind. That's really
3: interesting because I know they've got those um you see those Himalayan salt lamps, the big the big crystal um salt thing and, and it's supposedly if you when you turn on the lamp it kind of heats it a little bit and lets uh lets off negative ions and like salt into the air. So they've talked a lot about the ben- the health benefits of those of those lamps. I wonder if it's like a simple uh, similar
4: mechanism. Can I pose yeah. another question here? Does the salt make water more conductive to electricity? Because I was thinking about the uh, the low salt intake and the increased risk of death from cardiovascular disease or heart disease or anything. So if you consider that the heart runs on electricity, you have the sinoatrial mm. node that sparks the heart to beat. And if you don't yeah. have enough yeah. salt in your bloodstream, could that be a reason why? If you're I think that's uh... salt.
3: I
1: think that's a real possibility. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about that too. Because I was reading, you know, Earth Changes Pierce book, and it got me speculating on that line too, because it's not only heart disease. Like if you have Mm -hmm. very low magnesium levels in your blood, okay, the heart attack, it can be sudden death. And same Mm -hmm. thing with asthmatics. You know, they have low magnesium levels. It's very hard for them to respond to any drug at all. They have to have some minerals, you know, in the body in order to the whole them to
4: work out. Yeah, so it's oh, yeah. not just the electrical component, but the minerals that they're lacking also. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Just a quick yeah, search here. turns uh, up. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, just in response to Tiffany's question that, that yes, indeed, salt water is uh, more conductive because its uh, salt molecules are made of sodium ions and chlorine ions. And, uh, an ion, an ion is an atom that has an electrical charge because it's either gained or lost an electron. When you increase the concentration of ions in the water, then, uh, then does become more conductive. And it's a, it's a common, you know, kind of like high school, uh, science class experiment to create a saltwater circuit. Mm. So.
1: That's
0: fascinating. Doug, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. What were you going to say?
3: Well, I was just going to say something along the same lines, actually, because I know that uh, distilled water or like water that has no minerals in it whatsoever is is actually not very conductive at all. And uh, yeah. but it, but with the presence of minerals, it becomes much more conductive.
0: So, so that's interesting that it would cre- uh, potentially increase conductivity throughout the body as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: and this is what researchers that you know it sparks electrical activity, or thoughts, processes, muscle movements, or you know every single uh, physiological function in your body.
4: Huh?
3: So salt helps you think. Mm.
4: Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it'd be That's interesting why, to find out.
4: Minutes. It'd be interesting to find out if people who get struck by lightning have a high salt intake. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> that actually would be very interesting. this uh speaking of the cravings i was thinking while you guys were were talking earlier about that uh doug you had mentioned like the um you know the cravings as kind of a a marker for how much salt you need or don't need i Mm -hmm. this is purely anecdotal but i remember when i was younger um sometimes just eating tons of salt like because i just loved it you know and i would take like you know like two teaspoons in my hand and just munch it down and uh Depending on where we were, you know, I'd, like, take the salt shaker and dump it out into my hand and then take a bunch of salt in. And I I just remember that was something that I liked, you know, and it Mm -hmm. it didn't really go any further than that. Um, So I wonder if that was a a salt efficiency or perhaps some kind of an iodine efficiency because it was iodized. Um, Not sure.
3: Yeah. Interesting. Could
4: have been.
0: I don't know if other (laughs) – same thing with butter, too, where you know, like we were had talked about in the the high fat diet there there are some kids you know you just can't get them to stop eating butter, and i I think there's some underlying physiological reason for that it's not just because it tastes good,
4: mm-hmm.
0: yeah
2: um, yeah I'd like to com I'd like to comment on that
5: so
2: yeah. um, I want to talk about this dr. Joe Wallach. And he Uh produced back in 1994 an audio of a discussion he gave called Dead Doctors Don't Lie. And um, just to give you a little bit of background about Dr. Wallach, he's been involved in biomedical research and clinical medicine for 30 years. He originally received a Bachelor of Science degree from the University of Missouri uh, with a major in animal husbandry, uh, specifically nutrition and field crops, and then went on later to get a veterinarian degree from the University of uh, Missouri. Uh, he also did a three-year postdoctoral fellowship for the Center of Biology and Natural Systems at Washington University. And then he now has a naturopathic uh, degree from the Naturopathic Medicine College in Portland, Oregon. And he's researched and um, published more than 70 peer-reviewed reference articles in the field of nutrition, pharmaceutical research. And he's uh, a multi-author of eight textbooks and authorships a reference book material on the subject of compar- comparative medicine. Um, I bring him up because he in this, uh, dead doctors don't lie. It's about an hour, um, talk that he has. And I'll give a website at the end here, but you can listen to some of his, um, information. He runs a, a blog radio show as well that, um, he basically had this funny little habit of collecting um obituaries of doctors so he travels the united states lecturing i think he said like 300 days out of the year and he wanted to have a little hobby so to speak uh, that would actually help people so he started collecting obituaries of doctors and lawyers and and he he kind of has a funny take on it but hence why he calls his talk Dead Doctors Don't Lie. But he found that on average, uh, Americans have about a 75-year lifespan, but doctors have an average lifespan of 58 years. And so he kind of uh, makes a, a joke about that. And then he goes on to talk about the vital role minerals play in overall health. And because he has this background in animal husbandry, He talks about all these minerals like salt and chromium, copper, vanadium, selenium, and how animals were given these very basic um, mineral supplements. And he kind of debunks the whole thing about how vitamins don't really do anything. He's got a lot of great research in there. But what was fascinating in the beginning of his talk is he covered the um, the genetic potential for human longevity, and he talks about how people in various cultures, and I'll list the cultures, um, could live up to 120 to 140 years of age, hmm. and he basically says that based on his research, and he also did. Thousands of animal autopsies that people who were dying of natural causes were basically dying from vitamin deficiencies.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> and so he mentions five cultures whose people have been documented to live this long, up to 120 years. Um, the first one was the Tib- Tibetans in Western China. And he recommends a movie called Lost Horizons, a movie about the oldest living person in China. He also talks about the Hunza people in eastern Pakistan, western Russia, Armenians in particular. And he says in 1973, there was actually a special article in National Geographic um, about, you know, these people living in the Caucasus Mountains um, up to 167 years of age. And and they've been in the Guinness Book of World Records and whatnot. He also talks about the Ecuador natives and then the Titicacans. And he makes a funny little joke about that. He just loves Titicacans because they live on Lake Titicaca. And um, <laughs> they're famous. Uh, for living up to 120 to 140 years of age. And then Nigeria, Africa, and then in Syria, he has documentation of a man that lived up to 133 years of age. So, yeah. And basically, all of these kind of examples he uses, a lot of them he says, most of these cultures, especially in the Andes, they drink like 40 cups, of tea a day, but they add a huge chunk of salt to their tea and two pads of butter. So buttered tea with salt, he was saying, you know, definitely contributes to the longevity of, of these people and these cultures. And then he gives uh, two recommendations for long life. One is you avoid the pitfalls so you don't do stupid things and you won't die young. (laughs) And, again, he kind of has a really great sense of humor about that. And then the other is that you need to do the positive things. And, basically, his research shows that you need 90 nutrients in your daily diet. Otherwise, you will get a deficiency disease. And he basically says 60 minerals, 16 vitamins. 12 essential amino acids, protein building blocks, and three essential fatty acids.
4: <laughs>
2: and kind of to cover what you guys were talking about, the sugar cravings and kids, you know, uh, Jonathan, what you were saying about eating, you know, butter and as a kid. He mm. um, talks about this disease called PICA, P-I-C-A, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that... Um, it's basically a craving for minerals. And he uses some great examples. One, um, pregnant women, you know, so they have all these crazy cravings for peanut butter and ice cream. He's saying that in the human body, you know, carrying the fetus is unique. That's basically a craving for more minerals. He also goes into children, uh, like the child sitting in the living room eating kitty litter out of the cat box.
3: <laughs> because they're
2: basically craving these minerals. And then he went on to talk about how, you know, 40, 50 years ago, children were actually licking and chewing paint off the walls, um, you know, and they were getting this lead poisoning. And, you know, the U.S. spent all of this money to, you know, remove lead from homes and whatnot he basically saying it was just a mineral deficiency, that these children really just needed more minerals like salt in their diet. And so I, I found that really interesting. If people are interested in listening to him, he has a website where you can listen to his live shows. It's ksco com, and you can even just Google dead doctors don't lie and uh, he'll show up. There's, just a lot of information there, really helpful stuff. And I was kind of drawn to him because he had this background in agriculture and animal husbandry. So that's where I found that. And also on the SOT page, um, back in 2011, there was an article posted with a YouTube video um, called, You Need More Salt, Advice to the Contrary is Criminal. And he goes on to say, Don't lay off salt. Um, He talks about the many conditions like you guys already mentioned um, that stem from low salt in the body and that salt is an essential nutrient, sodium chloride. You cannot have nerve impulses without sodium chloride. They're an integral part of the biochemical system of nerve transmission and you cannot move water around your body or retain it in the right compartments inside your blood vessels, inside your tissues cells. You can't keep things in the right compartments without sodium chloride. The chief cells in your stomach cannot make stomach acid without salt. Sodium chloride is the raw material to make hydrochloric acid. He goes on to share that this whole um, issue with uh, GERD or gastrointestinal reflux disease, heartburn, is basically people are not getting enough salt. Hmm.
0: fascinating well that uh, that really sounds like a an interesting area to look into what what was the website again if you don't mind repeating that for uh oh, joe wallach
2: it, yeah it's ksco.com and okay. it's dead doctors don't lie with joe wallach
0: yeah cool but definitely uh really interesting things about the um the longevity uh, aspects, um, as well as the, uh, the amount of minerals. Um, I can confirm from something else that I had been reading from, uh, Dr. Tent, who's a practitioner in uh, Michigan. Uh, he talks about whenever he has, uh, pregnant women coming into his practice, he recommends 91, um, minerals and vitamins that they need to take to properly carry a, a baby to term. Uh, and that if you go to a normal pediatrician, they'll recommend something like seven to 11 of these components. Mm-hmm. And he kind of scoffs at it and says, you know, I can grow a worm with, uh, with seven things. You know, you'd really think that you need more to grow a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I mean, it, it it was interesting that you said 90 because that tracked with the close to the same number there. Um, well, along those lines, like, uh, we have uh, next coming up, Tiffany was going to go over some of the government guidelines about salt. And so maybe we mm-hmm. can see what's what's actually being recommended after we've talked about what the body actually needs. Let's talk about what the the powers that be, so to speak, would recommend for us to take.
4: Well, if it's coming from the government, you know it's absolute baloney. But um, <laughs> They recommend 2,300 milligrams, which is 0.3 grams per day. Um, This is just for normal, healthy adults. And then they go on further to recommend that um, African Americans, uh, adults over the age of 51, or anyone with high blood pressure, diabetes, or chronic kidney disease, only consume 1,500 milligrams, or 1.5 grams daily. So what is 1.5 grams it's only half a teaspoon, it's uh, half a teaspoon of salt <laughs> a day Wow! for, so if you take like all the black people, all the adults over 51, people with high blood pressure, diabetes, or chronic kidney disease, that's about half of the U.S. population eating mm. a recommended half a teaspoon of salt a day, and mm. we wonder why <laughs> there's so many, so many health problems.
0: Yeah, that's really negligible.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in 2.3 grams, that's only like maybe a little less than one teaspoon. And even that's nothing. But um, more enlightened sources recommend at least three, I think it's three to five grams a day at the lower end. But I think if you're relatively healthy and you don't have chronic kidney disease, I mean, maybe that is one condition where if your kidneys can't properly excrete excess sodium, that you might want to cut back on salt. Maybe that's just one, one condition that you want to watch your salt. But for everybody else, you know, salt your food to taste. Use good sea salt or Celtic sea salt or Himalayan salt um, and just, Use much salt you want, is what I say. <laughs> if you're if you're healthy.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah, I would say the same thing. I mean, um, I know for people, I don't know if you can get this in uh, in Europe or overseas, but in the United States, there's a brand called Real Salt that's uh, mm-hmm. taken from the Utah Salt Flats, and, and I use that here, and it's uh, it's quite tasty. It actually has a, a different flavor to it. You know, it's pink and brown and
4: mm-hmm. with
0: all these different colors mixed in from the minerals.
4: Yeah, sea salt tastes a lot better than regular table salt. So you might even yeah. end up using less salt, salt than you would if you were using table salt, but it tastes so much yummier. Mm-hmm. Oh, and there's one thing that you should not eat, which is uh, dead sea salt. Don't eat salt that's been harvested from the dead sea because uh, it has high amounts of bromide in it. So if you want to uh, screw up your thyroid gland, uh, you know, How how could
0: you, you identify salt. Dead Sea Salt, is it labeled as such?
4: I would hope so, but considering (laughs) our problems with labeling in this country, it might not (laughs) be. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Interesting that that, I wonder if that has anything to do with the etymology of the the name of the Dead Sea. It could be. Why would you
4: want to take in anything that says dead in it?
0: (laughs) Yeah, very interesting. I I know um, I, I had read a little bit too about um, salt actually being useful in uh, detoxing from bromide. That if you do get an overdose of bromide through any various uh, sources, that uh, that the, the, the chloride in, in sodium chloride will bind with the bromide and, and pass it out. So that if you if you're having bromide toxicity, you can take salt water to pass that through. Mm-hmm. But I. I shouldn't vouch for that because I can't confirm it right now. It's just something that I had been reading. Um, speaking of that, along the lines of, of home remedies, some things that we can vouch for from our, our resident medical expert, uh, Gabby. Did you want to go over some of the, uh, the medical uses of salt and some of the reasons for that?
1: Yes. Um, well, just to to review again, uh, let's just remind that you know, the ketogenic diet – Self consumption is a must. You know. That's basically now we are learning all the reasons why. But I have actually prepared another bulk remedy, which is very interesting and uh, very interesting. And to keep in mind just in case like Ebola breaks out, well I'm just saying, you know, not that it will break out, but for <laughs> any other <laughs> hemorrhagic fever, you know, where you're having controllable, you know, bleeding. So um, I ha I took this from an article published at South as-, as well and it's titled, Will Your Next Bandage Be Made of Cured Salt Pork? So it it's basically, you know, uh like a perfect remedy to stop nose bleeding. Um and it's called yes, nasal packing with strips of cured pork. Basically salt pork in the nose for one day up to five days. And this is a very common folk remedy, apparently, but it has made also its way through scientific journals as a remedy to stop, to stop nose bleeding secondary to congenital diseases such as Renzo Osler Weber. These are folk children with, you know, intractable nose bleeding. It's extremely difficult to, to make it stop on sometimes when surgery works. So it is very well documented that, you know, just stacking your nose with salted pork. And uh, that's it, you know. There's also another case. <laughs> it's very remarkable, actually. There's another case in a scientific journal of a girl suffering from a very rare hybrid, um disorder, you know, congenital disorder, disorder. She produced prolonged bleeding and just stuck with, you know, salted pork. Uh, just remember that your nose cavity is very large, so you have to use thin strips and pack the nose with a lot of strips, you know. You can help wow, you really get with it. the health Yeah, it's it really like Yes, it fits a lot. You can have some tweezers, you know, with good instrument to pack the salted pork. But <laughs> it does <laughs> it does work. And um so yes, salt pork to control intractable nose bleeding reported in um in cases of high blood pressure. You know where there is um, an increased uh, risk of, of having a nosebleed. Uh, these conditions are high blood pressure, leukemia, hemophilia, but also measles, typhoid fever, and that's why I mentioned earlier. You know, even Ebola. You know, and hemorrhagic fevers. So keep that, keep this in mind.
4: <laughs> well, after you, you hear, sticking bacon you up your nose. Snack. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was
0: another.
3: It,
2: but... Yeah, there was another article uh, just this published this week about high salt diet protects against infection and increases immune function. That basically just confirms what you say, Gabby, uh, about a, a JAMA study in 2011 that showed, you know, the contrary to the medical. Advice, I suppose, for years, salt actually lengthens your life. It doesn't cut your life or risk the risk of hypertension. And then um, they published recently in the uh, Cell Metabolism, Dietary Salt Could Have a Biological Advantage Defending the Body Against Invading Microbes. And um, the author, Jonathan Jemstich, a microbiologist, And I'm not even going to attempt to say the name of the university, but he said that uh, up until now, salt has been regarded as a detrimental dietary factor. It is clearly known to be detrimental for cardiovascular disease. And recent studies have uh, implicated a role in worsening autoimmune disease. And he goes on to say, our current study challenges this one-sided view and suggests that increasing salt accumulation at the site of infections might be an ancient strategy to ward off infections long before antibiotics were invented. They Mm -hmm. go on to say a high salt diet increased sodium um, accumulation in the skin of mice, thereby boosting their immune system to a skin-infecting parasite. The findings suggest that dietary salt could have therapeutic potential to promote a host defense against microbial infections. So, yeah, the the information well, is coming out now.
0: <laughs> <clears throat> that would make sense so also for the – yeah. Yeah. But it, it would just occurred to me that um, uh, Epsom salts, right, which is magnesium chloride, that that, that, that would make sense, uh, why those would be beneficial for uh, skin conditions, you know, if it's fighting bacterial infection at the skin level.
4: Mm.
3: I just find uh, it really yeah. interesting that bacon is actually a, uh, a home remedy for all these things. You can use topical bacon for uh, you know <laughs> to bandage your wounds in bacon and stick it up your nose <laughs> if you've got nosebleeds. Like who knew it was yeah. such like so versatile? You could, yeah.
1: yes, who knew because it's for severe cases, you know, where you actually resort to surgery to stop the nose bleeding. Well, actually, keep in mind this one: <laughs> pork, salted pork.
0: Wow! <laughs> wow. <laughs> I can uh, I, I can confirm with another um, uh, anecdotal uh, story. Uh, a friend of mine uh, a few years back, um, just kind of tromping around the woods, uh, fell and got a really bad gash on his leg. And uh, I give him credit for doing this because I would have never thought to do this right away. But he basically cleaned it out with apple cider vinegar and then packed it with sea salt and wrapped it up with an ace bandage. And it healed very quickly within like three or four days. Nice. Um, of course, um, the experience was quite traumatic. You know, <laughs> there was a lot of scooping yeah. involved.
1: Talk yeah, about putting salt in you your you wound. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah um, let's keep this one in mind because emergencies, you know, are typically very, you know, very problematic, and it's hard to think. But yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. But it, it's I'm still fascinated by the bacon up the nose thing. <laughs> <laughs> just the idea that you would have to get it all the way up into your nasal cavity it seems like it would be yeah. troublesome but extreme cases yeah
1: that's, a, that's a good to have a, a preparatory you know your medical kit uh just a basic like tweezer from a website of medical supplies it's very very cheap it's sometimes uh. having the right instrument is the best thing you can have you know Sure. It you can easily pat a nose with a, with the right instrument, very very
0: easy.
4: Huh. And don't try to substitute with bacon bits.
0: Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. Wait. So is the um, I'm guessing in this context then that the pork is basically just a, a carrier for the salt, right? Or is there actually some benefit to the um, to the meat itself?
1: I think it will be the fat itself, especially if it's uh, organic. Uh, sure. I think we reviewed this in an earlier show that, you know, saturated fat, you know, large was having very good results on animal models because, um, you know, the research from fat, all the benefits uh comes from omega-3 fish oil. This is because it's mainstream medicine, you know, who, who doesn't want to admit the benefits of, you know, saturated fat and so forth. But yeah. preliminary studies on animal models showed that large is very beneficial, more than fish oil. So it
0: could be the best. Mm. Sure. That makes sense. Well, um, talking to, we've, we've mentioned a couple different types of salts, uh, you know, sea salt, real salt, um, Epsom salts, and things like that. Um, I was just going to go over real quick, like uh, I had been doing some reading on the refinement process of salt and it's pretty straightforward. It's it's kind of what you would think. Um most of the table salt uh that you get is actually um taken from sea salt. You know, it's it's refined from uh salt water or it's mined from underground, but it's uh it's purified through a precipitation process where the minerals and what they would call you know contaminants are taken out um and then re reevaporated, leaving behind the pure sodium chloride crystals. Um, so that, uh, most of the salt, you know, the table salt that you get is sodium chloride by itself. However, um, part of the reasons you might want to avoid table salt, uh, are that, um, it's usually, uh, they have added anti-caking agents to it, you know, so that your salt shaker doesn't clump up when you're trying to shake it onto your, your food. And those are commonly, um, sodium aluminosilicate and magnesium carbonate. Now, magnesium carbonate by itself, uh, not so bad in itself. But what you really want to avoid is the sodium aluminosilicate because you're getting a, a, a minor dose of aluminum there. But then if you do eat a lot of salt, uh, you're actually upping your, your dose of aluminum that you're taking in. Uh, and that is not not the best um, thing for your body in the long term. So just a, a note uh, to people to. When, when you're looking for different types of salt, I would say by all means, you know, uh, avoid regular table salt. And even if you're looking at into uh, sea salt, I, I would say generally avoid the stuff that's pure white. Um, you want to get uh, the kinds that is kind of colored, uh, that has the mineral content that your body needs. But I think Doug can expand a little bit more on that. You were going to talk about some of the different types. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: So yeah, I think, you know, like like you were saying, avoiding table salt is, is uh is is definitely something that you uh, you want to do um if if at all possible because of those an- uh anti-caking agents and other chemical additives, um but also because it's missing the entire mineral profile. They've taken out all those those important minerals, the trace minerals that uh that are important uh part of the salt. Um So just a couple of different types of salt here that you can find in the store. Um, Kosher salt, uh, it's basically the same as table salt, but um, it's likely uh, not to have the anti-caking agents, um, and they don't tend to add iodine. Uh, They do add iodine to uh, table salt, uh, mainly because they were finding that people were actually um, suffering from an iodine deficiency. So they're like, okay, well, let's put it in the salt. Um, Ironically, though, uh, natural salts like sea salt, um, they have natural iodine occurring in them. So by taking all the minerals out of it, uh, people started to suffer from an iodine deficiency, so they they started putting it back in. Um, So kosher salt uh, is basically just pure sodium chloride. Um, So again, you're getting none of those trace minerals that you need. Um, It tends to be kind of more uh, uh, larger crystals, Um, so people kind of like it sometimes. I know it gets used in, like, the restaurant industry a lot because it's kind of like a I don't know, like an artisanal salt they, they almost use it as but uh, but really it's it's uh, it, it's just pure sodium chloride so and you know it's mentioned of uh, the taste of salt before um, and a lot of the times when you get a nice tasting salt um, it's because there are all those trace minerals in there uh, just pure sodium chloride has a very sharp taste to it um, mm-hmm. so you'll notice in table salt and kosher salt and stuff eating it straight it's it's almost too much it's like really a really sharp taste Whereas if you eat one of these more um, like sea salt or Himalayan salt or something like that, it has a, a more well-rounded and it's not quite as sharp. Um, that's because of the, uh, the, the trace minerals in there. Um, so then there's sea salt. Uh, and a lot of times when you find like sea salt in the grocery store and things like that, it still tends to be a refined salt. It's just that they're, they're um, kind of vouching for the fact that it did originally come from the sea. So you do want to avoid kind of like no-name sea salt um or pure white sea salt as jonathan was saying uh, the whiter it is the less mineral content there tends to be um the sea salt is uh, is naturally occurring um it has all that naturally occurring iodine and all those trace minerals um you can often find it uh, under names like celtic sea salt or fleur de sel um and these are these are just kind of like the artisanal versions of it um the celtic sea salt is actually collected from ocean pools um the salt actually crystallizes on the surface um, and that's uh, the, the fleur de sel gets its name because uh, it looks like little flowers, and they collect it off the top of these, uh, these ocean pools. Um, it is high in trace minerals, including potassium, iron, and zinc. Um, there's also Himalayan pink salt, which is uh, quite trendy right now in health foods. Um, it's harvested from Pakistan in, um, in uh, these uh, salt mines in uh, Kura, Kura salt mine, uh, which is actually the largest salt mine in the world. Um, It's pink because of the presence of iron oxide, which is actually rust. Um, It's found only in trace amounts, probably not harmful. Um, It also has trace amounts of calcium, iron, and magnesium, and it's higher in potassium than other salts. Um, It is lower in sodium than other types of salt, um, so you might need to use more of it, but it's probably just why it has less of that kind of sharp flavor to it. So, you know, a lot of times it's it's considered beneficial because people are like, oh, yeah, it has less sodium in it. But, um, you know, we know that the sodium is actually a good thing. Um, One thing I read uh, fairly recently is that uh, the Himalayan salt actually is fairly high in fluoride. Um, so I'm I'm kind of undecided at this point whether that makes it a bad thing or not, but uh, something to be um, careful of. And if you are using Himalayan salt, you might want to rotate your salt every once in a while. Use the Himalayan for a while, but then maybe try something else for, for a bit just to to make sure you're not getting uh, too much of that fluoride. Um, Jonathan mentioned a type of salt called real salt, and that's, uh, it comes from an ancient seabed that's in Utah. Um contains over 60 different trace minerals. Um, and it's, it's, it's a pink salt as well, but it's, uh, it's cheaper than the Himalayan stuff, um, probably because it's not being uh, shipped all the way from, uh, from Pakistan. Um, you can also find a lot of different gourmet salts out there, um, like back, uh, black salt coming from India, which has a kind of a sulfury kind of taste to it. Um, there's the Hawaiian red salt, which is red from uh, the presence of a, a red clay called alea. Um, there's also volcanic black salt, um, and they're all very interesting and, and have kind of different flavor profiles, and a lot of foodies out there will tell you, to, oh, yeah, use the volcanic black salt for this type of cooking, and um, apparently a lot of vegan chefs like the, the black salt from Hawaii, or sorry, from India, because uh, it has uh, a kind of a, a sulfury taste to it, so it kind of almost works like a, an egg replacement. Um, and they're all very interesting, and really uh, they have all these diff- different uh Mineral profiles. So, you know, I, I encourage people to kind of try different salts out at different times, just to to get those different uh, mineral profiles and uh, and to try out some some different kind of subtle flavors to your to your cooking.
0: Awesome.
2: I agree. I wanted well, to add just one thing about the Himalayan salt. Um, They're, they're building these salt caves at spas and saunas now. And, uh, we had the opportunity to visit one yesterday and it's an entire sauna made of Himalayan salt blocks. And it was really, you know, so you're in a, in a sauna sweating and you're surrounded by Mm -hmm. this salt. And on their little brochure, which is just so fascinating, not to mention the, the, the beauty of being surrounded by Himalayan salt was that for centuries, Himalayan mineral-rich salt caves were highly valued for therapeutic, therapeutic use in regulating blood pressure, le, uh, reducing stress levels, balancing blood sugar and pH acid levels and promoting healthy patterns in intimacy and sleep. Other benefits include improving respiratory system and reducing the common signs of aging via purifying the skin. So I thought that was really fascinating. So maybe Mm -hmm. if you're not eating it, you can, uh, like you were talking about Doug, the lamps Mm -hmm. and, um, just having that, or or even the the Himalayan salt scrubs that are now very common in the health food industry.
1: Related to that, I have a story of a patient, you know, who went to the emergency room and the only treatment that he had was one liter of physiological solution, saline solution, sodium chloride, you know, that was his only treatment. He had uh, psoriasis, you know, problem, which is not in NBC. He said that after that treatment that day at the emergency room, his uh, his flakes of psoriasis disappeared. You know, it, it would be erection problems for months, and no treatment will clear them out. And just like one liter of physiological solution into his butt, and clear the clear it out. Wow. You know, I just remember wow. <laughs> mm.
0: Yeah, that's, that's
4: amazing.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
3: Yeah, there's also, um, in a lot of health food stores now, you can get uh, these things called salt inhalers. And it's basically just like a ceramic container that has salt in it. The, the ones I've seen have specifically have the Himalayan salt in it. And the idea is that you just kind of breathe it in. And uh, it's supposed to help with, like, lung ailments, uh, asthma. If anybody has uh, any kind of bronchial infection or something like that, it can be
0: very helpful. Sure. The, Erica, when you mentioned the uh, the sea salt uh or the Himalayan salt sauna that made me think that, um you know, uh, where I'm from, there's a lot of uh Finlanders and it's a common tradition to take, you know, water into the sauna with you and throw it onto the stones so that the steam comes up. And I wonder if you just put some salt into your water and then evaporated that while you were in there, that would have a beneficial effect as well.
2: Oh yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, living on an island where we're surrounded by ocean, you know, a lot of doctors' recommendations if you're having, like you said, bronchial issues or asthma, to go down and sit on the beach and breathe in the salt water, right, to Hmm. help, you know, clear out the nasal cavity and and whatnot. So I'm sure that that would be a a good way to to get that inside your lungs as well.
0: Sure. Great. Well... um Let's see. We're coming up on our, uh, our close to our hour and a half mark, and we have our pet health segment for this week from Zoya. Um, so I think we're going to go to that for a few minutes, and then we'll come back with our recipe for today, which is going to be talking about um, how to make your own bacon at home from uh, pork belly. So stay tuned for that. And uh, here is Zoya. We'll be back shortly. <laughs>
5: Hello and welcome to the Natural Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today we are going to continue talking about herbal medicine, specifically about three main herbs that you can find in every pharmacy or even collect yourself uh, and that are also the least dangerous in case of an overdose or incorrect use. Please note that your pet may still have an allergic reaction to one of the herbs, so just in case, make sure that you have an antihistamine of any kind in your house. So the herbs that we are going to talk about are calendula, or marigold uh, flowers, chamomile, and oak bark. Calendula officinalis, or marigold flowers, can be collected until the first frost. Uh, Calendula is a medicinal plant that has been known for a very long time. Uh, They have many properties and are used in case of many diseases. Uh, calendula flowers are used for diseases of the liver and gallbladder, spleen, stomach cramps, stones in the bladder, in case of rachitis, um, in order to improve the well-being of animals with tumors of the gastrointestinal tract. Uh, calendula is also being widely used externally, as an application on wounds, guts, uh, skin ulcers, diseases of the mouth. But not only flowers are useful. You can crush fresh leaves and also apply to wounds, abscesses or skin ulcers. For washing wounds and skin ulcers, um, inflammation of the skin after bites of bees, wasps, and you can use fresh juice of the flowers. You can also make anointment. It is prepared by mixing fresh marigold juice with either vaseline, wool fat, or simply lard in proportion of 1 to 10. Calendula tincture made from marginal flowers uh, and alcohol in a strength of 70%, also in the proportion of 1 to 10. And uh, doses for animals is from 1 to 10 drops three times a day. The amount of, of the drops depends on the weight of the animal. You can use this tincture to irrigate oral cuts, festering wounds, and burns. And the proper dosage is one teaspoon of tincture in a glass of water. Now let's talk about chamomile. Infusion of chamomile flowers is used for intestinal cramps, acute and chronic gastritis, inflammation of the small and large intestine, and bloating. Chamomile is used in diseases of the liver, gallbladder, kidney, bladder, and increased excitability, hysteria, neurosis, and convulsions. It can be used as a decoction that has anti-inflammatory properties in the proportion of 1 to 10. So, precise doses for dogs is 1 to 3 grams, and cats uh, half a gram to up to 1 gram uh, you can give it 3-6 times a day 20-30 uh, minutes before feeding uh, if you have a large breed dog you can give it to them up to 100 milliliters of decoction 2-3 uh, times a day basically if you have a dog or a cat that you know that they have uh, some sort of gastrointestinal problems uh, uneasiness in stomach especially after f- after eating so basically as an uh, calming agent you can give them a chamomile decoction before uh, each time they eat uh, and also notice that um, I use a metric uh, measurement system uh, when this recording will be made into an article uh, I will include other uh, US uh, system measurement um, measurement amounts but for now, you can basically uh, take one gram and then translate it using uh, Google, for example, and see how it translates into your own uh, measurement system. Now, you can also use chamomile as a, a sedative or relaxing tea. Uh, for example, you can take 8 grams of flowers per half a liter of boiling water. Wait for, for this tea uh, to, to sit uh, for 15 minutes. And uh, you can give it instead of water uh, to a dog, for example, uh, preferably overnight. You can also use chamomile uh, in case of cold and flu as an uh, inhalation. Uh, basically use breathing fumes, for your pet to breathe fumes of chamomile, infusion of chamomile. Uh, chamomile is used also externally as an astringent, antiseptic. A anti-inflammatory agent in the form of rinses, lotions, uh, in case of burns, wounds, abscesses. Um, it significantly relieves inflamed tissue, reduces pain, uh, promotes rapid maturation and opening of the superative focus. Uh, you can also take 2-3 tablespoons of flowers pour them into a boiling water to form a pasty mess. You can wrap uh, this mess in a clean cloth and apply to the affected area. Uh, in case of stomatitis and other diseases it's possible to rinse uh, the oral mucosa with chamomile tea prepared from one to, tea, uh, from two, one, uh, to two tablespoons of flowers in one cup of water. Uh, now let's talk about common oak. Oak bark has an astringent, anti-inflammatory, antiseptic and hemostatic effect. It is applied in the form of decoction uh, in a proportion of 1 to 10 in case of inflammation of the mucous membranes of the stomach and intestines and in case of uh, gastrointestinal bleeding. Uh, doses of oak bark in powder form uh, for dogs is 1 to 5 grams and cats is uh, 0.2 up to 1 gram and you can give it to them 3 times a day externally oak bark decoction can be used also in a proportion of 1 to 10 in stomatitis, inflammation of the mucous uh, uh, membranes of the mouth, gums And in pharyngitis, inflammation of the mucous membrane of the pharynx. Uh, For the treatment of skin burns, you can apply a bit stronger decoction of 1 to 5. And the same decoction is recommended for gastritis and enteritis as an antiseptic agent. Uh, Well, I think that uh, this is it for today. Um, And hopefully this information helped you. And have
0: a nice day. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you, Zoya. That was a great segment. Uh, <clears throat> certainly, uh, hope that people can utilize some of that information for their pets. Um, less trips to the uh, the vet, and uh, more gaining of personal knowledge about how to deal with health problems with your animals. Um, so let's see, uh, today for our recipe, uh, we're going to talk about making bacon, and I know how much our, our listeners love bacon, and uh, if it's possible for you to get a, a pork belly, that's really what this recipe calls for. Now, it's it's hard, um, depending on where you are or what kind of access you have to a butcher, um, pork bellies can be ordered online. Uh, or, you know, you can, if you have farmers in your area that, uh, that farm pigs, you can get bellies directly from them. But, um, as I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are aware of, but maybe not as many as I think are aware that, that bacon is the belly of the pork, um, of the pig. And, uh, it comes in a, uh, in a large kind of flat, uh, sheet almost, you know, maybe an inch to an inch and a half thick, um, usually with a layer of skin on it. Uh, depending on where you get it from. Sometimes if you order these uh, online, they'll come without the skin. Um, but this recipe, is uh, the ingredients are for one pound of uh, belly. So if you have a larger section of belly, then you can adjust it accordingly. Um, so basically, bacon is pork belly that's essentially cured uh, and then spiced, and then you slice it up and then you grill it. As everybody knows, you grill bacon. Um, or you can do it in the oven. Um, but what you want to do here. So I'm just going to go through this, uh, with the equivalent ingredients for one pound of belly. And like I said, you can step that up as you need, um, start with, uh, the belly itself. And like I said, if it has the skin on it, uh, take a a sharp knife and kind of carefully flay that off and, uh, save it. You can make cracklings. You can do a bunch of stuff, uh, make rinds, uh, with the skin. Um, so if you're not going to use it right away, put it in a baggie or a container and throw it in the freezer until you're able to use it. Um, so here then, uh, what we would do is take a a baggie uh, or a vacuum seal bag, depending on what you have. Uh, sometimes you can just use like a one gallon freezer bag, anything that seals. Um, and you want to start with, this is a, uh, also, this is a wet cure, not a dry cure. There are lots of different dry cures available online. Um, you can also get pre-made, uh, cure mixes. The reason I would discourage against that is a lot of those come with sugar. And this recipe is specifically without sugar, which, um, of the meat curing people might disagree with. Uh, personally, I think, you know, you can spice it up with any of the artificial sweeteners kind of on the back end. If you want to, uh, not artificial, sorry, but like, uh, the natural, like we were talking about xylitol, erythritol, or stevia. Um, but leave those out of the curing process uh, for this specific recipe. So start with a quarter cup of water uh, for one pound of belly, and then add one and a half teaspoons of salt. And here I would recommend using real salt or Himalayan pink salt, something along those lines, not uh, table salt. Um, And then one and a half teaspoons of ground black pepper. Um, And basically just mix that together in the water, uh, create your brine, and then pour that into the baggie with the pork belly, seal it shut, and rub it around uh, quite vigorously and for a little amount of time until you get that all worked into the belly. Um, once you get that really worked in and you have it sealed up in the baggie or in your vacuum sealer pack, um, throw it into the refrigerator for seven days and do your best to be patient. Basically, just you know, put it on the shelf, leave it in there for a week. Um, when you come back to it, then take it out and rinse it off uh, quite well and pat it dry with a paper towel or something else and then um uh, basically put it on a, a plate or something else back into the fridge for another 24 hours that will allow any of the remaining moisture to kind of drain out um and it'll uh it'll basically allow the juices to kind of move around a little bit more in the pork belly once And it's also easier to cut uh, when it's cold. So once that's done, after the, the 24 hours after the seventh day, um, take that back out, slice it up, and grill it up as bacon. Um, that's a really simple recipe that only calls for salt and black pepper. Uh, you can spice this up pretty much any way you want, depending on what kind of bacon you want to make. You can add garlic. Um, you can add any other kinds of, like, uh, say cardamom or thyme or um, oregano, basil, anything else you want to do to add different flavors to that during the, uh, the wet cure process and let those flavors move around. Basically what happens while it's in the bag during those seven days is the salt, uh, in the water, um, allows it to move, uh, the flavors through the meat. And it, it basically kind of breaks the proteins down a little bit in the meat, um, and uh, it, this is best uh, kept cold. Um, you don't want to let this sit out for a long time. It's a, a curing process kind of for the modern era. You wouldn't want to hang this in your shed, you know, or something like that. Um, if you want to do smoke bacon, now this is the other part of it. You can take that after you've done the salt cure for seven days and then uh, allow it to dry for the, the ensuing 24 hours. You can put it into a smoker if you have a smoker or a grill and use um hickory or apple wood or some other kind of thing uh some other kind of good uh wood for smoking um and basically try to keep it Now i'm i'm trying to look up my my temperatures here um i would say 225 like 200 to 225 degrees fahrenheit for about an hour and a half uh, and then take it out uh let it cool put it back in the fridge until it cools completely and then slice it up and then you have smoked bacon. So it's really up to you whether you want to do uh straight bacon or smoked bacon. Um, so that's it. It's actually quite simple, but you'll notice. Um, and I found this out the first time I was kind of dabbling with this is that uh, it was like, Oh, bacon is pork belly. So I'll just get some pork belly and slice it up and grill it. Well, <clears throat> it doesn't taste like bacon when you do that because it's, it's not, it's essentially just pork. Um, the, you get a lot of the bacon flavor from the uh, curing process from the salts that are used, and from any spices that you might want to add to that mixture. So, I would encourage people to experiment, play around. Um, if you can get a hold of a belly, um, cut it up into different sections, and then try different recipes for each one, and see what suits your liking. So that's our, mm-hmm. uh, our recipe f- for today. Great. Sounds good. Any, any of you guys have anything else to add, or any any personal experience on that?
3: No, but I think I'd like to try making bacon. Yeah. <laughs>
0: the the hardest part I think is is getting a hold of the belly just because it's a little it's a little pricey and um you you know you, you can't just go get usually you can't just go get a pound of belly from the store. You have to order it uh by the, you know, in bulk. Um so uh commonly uh around here if you're getting it like from Cisco or another kind of distributor, um I wanna say it was ninety something dollars for about twenty pounds um uh-huh. so you're looking at about four dollars a pound give or take maybe a little bit less um so it's gonna come out to a similar cost uh as buying like bulk bacon from the store um mm-hmm. but it's just much more satisfying to make your own so and well, I don't know um, where you,
3: well, I don't know where you are but uh bacon costs a heck of a lot more than that where i'm where I'm coming from <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, there's certainly think, different uh, yeah well, I, you know, I, I think uh, like you know, at, you know, w- nicely raised uh, or organic bacon costs something like ten or twelve bucks a pound here.
0: Wow.
3: Yes.
0: Yeah, and I, I have seen I've, that as well. Uh, yeah.
2: Um, I've made uh, the bacon. As you suggested before, Jonathan, and we've done it several times and we use the smoker in the end. I will say the first time we made it, we went, we used the Hawaiian sea salt with the alai that Doug was talking about us, the minerals. The first time we made it, it was way too salty. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh, Even the kids were like, oh my gosh. So you know, definitely experiment with it because we did exactly as you suggested, and then uh, we rinsed it off. But I think we uh, we just we used way too much salt because uh, sure. we were you know first time, and so yeah, it takes a little bit of experimenting, but it's it's really an awesome thing to do because you you go through the whole process, and at the end you have your own homemade bacon.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, especially you can for picking up your nose, <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. yes, if you over salt it, you can stick, put it on your wound <laughs> yeah.
0: i I will say certainly, uh you know, sweet bacon is really nice, but for those people who are being really strict about sugar or even um whether or not you want to even if you if you need to avoid sugar um for dietary restrictions and things like that this is a good way to make bacon and basically completely leave that out of the process because 90, 95% of the bacon that you're going to get commercially is, is cured with sugar. Um, mm-hmm. So this is a way to do that. Okay. All right. Well, that's uh that's our show for today. Uh, be sure to tune in next week. We're going to be covering um, preparation. Uh, basically, uh, prepping, right, for short, uh, but we're going to be focusing on canning, uh, supplements, medical supplies, and um, bone broth, and um, keeping those things, uh, you know, at the ready, uh, and how to kind of be ready for situations where you might be without power, uh, without access to a grocery store, uh, without access to, you know, the pharmacy or anything like that, and, and kind of what to have on hand for emergency situations. Um, so be sure to tune in next week for the the prepping edition of the health and wellness show all right thanks everybody
4: thank bye, you everybody. thank
3: you bye